6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You may be seated. As we briefly discussed earlier, that water is a symbol of purification. It's the same kind of line of thought that when uh, your kids come into the house from playing outside and they walk through the front door, you say, take off your shoes. Actually, it's not much different than what God said to Moses when Moses was coming toward him when he was there in the burning bush, and he said, Moses, take off your shoes, for this place where you are standing is holy ground. It's set apart. It's sanctified. It's consecrated for a purpose that is not common. Right? It is uncommon purpose. That's the word for, for holy. And really, when we think of holiness, and particularly as we think about the, the demarcation of what holiness is, that is the standard of, of God, when we think about God's holiness, it should cause us to think about our unholiness. When I think about God, I should think about how unclean my shoes are, my feet are, my hands are, my head is, my mind, and my heart, and my hands. I should think about how unclean I am in light of how holy God is, which is the same thing you just saw from Isaiah, that he, in the presence of God, sees his utter unholiness, his utter defilement. And really, it's on your notes if you look at the preaching point. The knowledge of God's holiness should cause you to confess your need for God to cleanse you from your sin. The symbol of baptism is that in which we stand before God is a symbol in front of our church. As we said, as God has cleansed me and purified me, I am now standing before the church as a symbol of this reality that I recognize that I'm impure before God. And this water is that symbolic representation of the purification of my sin through the righteousness of Christ. And if you're there, I hope you are. You can go to Isaiah 6, starting there in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah, this is Azariah, if you read in some of the uh, historical books of the Old Testament, Samuel, uh, Kings, uh, Chronicles, you'll see him as King Azariah. Uh, when he died in that year, so we're, we're thinking we're 740 B.C., uh, he reigned for a long time there in the southern kingdom of Judah. And as he died, you then have Isaiah 
who's taken in a vision into the, the holy throne room of God in the heavens, and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. I'm not just saying he had a nice little robe that kind of flowed off of his, his throne seat. Uh, I'm saying that like his glory, the emanation, the manifestation of his glory filled the whole place. Like There wasn't a place you would step without being in the holiness of God, and that's the point of this. right? It filled the temple. We're talking about the epitome of, of holiness, the epitome of this manifestation of God's holy, which is often the word we use for glory. Like, what is glory? Glory is the manifestation of the holiness of God. And so when we see the whole earth is full of the glory of God, which you see in this text, what we're saying is that God's holiness has been manifested to all creation. In the heavens above and on the earth below, the glory of God, which is His holiness made seen, is known to us. And as He is there in Isaiah, in this throne room, He sees this whole place filled with the glory of God. And He's picturing this, and I want you to see it. I mean, He's He's explaining the holiness of God in a way you and I can understand, right? When we think about what is the most glorious thing, well, think about a monarch who is sitting in his palace and he's got this wonderful robe on that shows his divinity and his wonder and his, his glory. And it's, it's just beautiful. And it's like, okay, imagine that, but a million times more than that. And we're talking about, at least in a way that a human can understand, the splendor and the majesty of God. And if that doesn't do it for you, above him stood these seraphim, which literally the term seraphim means burning ones. So if we're thinking about what we're seeing in Isaiah's vision, we're seeing the holy God up on his throne, and around him we see the burning ones, angelic beings, the burning ones. Each of them had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. We've already talked a lot about feet. They covered his feet again. And with two they flew. And and this, again, is symbolic. They covered their feet. They covered their eyes out of the reverence and awe of the holiness of God. That he is the pinnacle of all of the universe. And they, as they are sitting there, they need six wings just to be in the presence of God. They need six because they've got to cover the unholiness of their feet. They need to cover their eyes because they're going to recognize that he is holy. He's completely distinct and different. And who are we in the presence of such majesty? So they close their eyes. And by the grace of God, they have an extra set of wings to fly. That's a wonderful gift of the Lord. Six pairs of wings just to be with God. And one called to another, and this is what they said. And you see this repeated. I love this as a meta narrative of Scripture in a lot of the throne rooms of God, in all the throne room scenes of the God of God throughout Scripture. You have Ezekiel and Isaiah and Revelation. You always see something going on. There's always these angelic beings flying around the Lord, and they're saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord." Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What conclusion you can draw from that is this: there ain't a minute that goes by in heaven where there aren't. A continuous song of angelic beings saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And we should just take it from them that it must be true because they're with him all the time. They're flying all around him. And the only thing, as they're looking and they're flying around, and the only thing they can think is holy, holy, holy. And next week they're going to be flying around. I mean, holy, distinct, set apart, completely different, otherworldly. This is what they think. This is what they see when they see God. 
And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love this. I don't have the amount of time that I wish I had on this text. But just think about this idea of the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. Right? Transcendence means that he is so far away, okay? which we see this when you think about holy. Holy does mean that. Right? When you have a clean blanket and a dirty blanket, what you want to do is what? Get them bad boys as far away from each other as you can. Right? You do not want the dirty blanket to defile the clean blanket. Right? You want them, that clean blanket to be utterly transcendent in relationship to that dirty blanket. That's just, that is just nature right? that we recognize you don't want dirty to touch clean. And so in the sense of God's holiness, he is completely transcendent of his creation because of his utter holiness that he, even in a state of the earth being perfect, he is still otherness. He's completely other. But at the same time, it says that he is holy and he is transcendent, but the whole earth is full of his glory. And so that's an interesting concept in the Christian faith that you do not see in other religions. That we can both have a God who is transcendent, which, you know, Muslims would love that idea. They do love the idea of a transcendent God that I cannot know, I cannot ever relate to or commune with. That's a wonderful thing. But the minute that you would tell a Muslim that God is imminent, well, then you would love the pantheists, right? The Eastern mystical uh, religions, Hinduism. Yeah, God is so, he's, he's imminent. You know, he's all around. He's in everything. He is everything. It, it is distinct to the Christian religion that you would say that I have a God who is otherly, but yet a God that is here. The, old, the whole earth is full of the manifestation of his holiness. That's a wonderful truth of the Christian life, that God is so distinct, but yet he has made himself known in your life. First thing I want us to do, I want us to take the testimony of Isaiah, the burning ones here, and I want us to take it seriously because it tells us that we need to do this as point number one. You need to have a clear vision of God's holiness. You and I need to have a clear vision of God's holiness because I will surmise that you can't do anything worth anything unless you will first have a clear understanding, at least a clear valuation in a human way, as much as we can understand who God is and what it means that God is holy. You want to live in light of who God is, you must first and foremost understand God is holy and what that means. It's kind of like you and I were identifying things in our life, which you have to. You recognize you and I, we have to identify things every day. We have to define what we're looking at. I mean, you do this every single moment of every single second of your life. And I want you to imagine uh, there's this creature, big, probably about 900 pounds. Uh, it's kind of yellow, blondish, uh, got a huge bundle of hair here, uh, big teeth, okay? A little fuzzy thing on the end of its tail. What am I describing? A lion. Oh, you defined that, didn't you? You defined that. Why? Because it'd be pretty important for you if you rolled up on a lion that you'd come up with a real accurate definition of what in the world that is. Because it's going to determine some things about how you relate to that lion, isn't it? I mean, you recognize a lot bigger than me. Check. Okay. A lot scarier than me. Check. Teeth, a lot sharper than mine. Okay, check. Then you begin recognizing, okay, as I have identified and defined this lion, I then begin saying in my life, here's how I can and here's how I will not approach this lion. Here is the parameters of this relationship that I have with that in me, you, you see understanding what a lion is is going to help you understand how you would relate to a lion. 
And it is no different in your relationship with God. People wonder, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to relate to God. I don't know how to talk to God. I don't, know, I don't know what it means to live for God because you don't know who God is. And if you want to know who God is, you must first deal with the holiness of God because when you can start understanding the holiness of God, you can begin defining who God is and what that relationship ought to look like because you said, holy, holy, holy. That begins a wonderful foundation of relating to God rightly and biblically. Amen? All right, well, let's keep going. Look at verse 4. And the foundations, and I want you to just, as you're reading this, in the back of your mind, how does creation respond? How does all the things God created respond to his holiness? Well, here it is. Just at the sheer utterance of the fact that God is holy, here's what happens. The foundations of the threshold of the temple shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. At the sheer mention of God's holiness, you have creation itself trembling before God. And you see smoke billowing up and filling the temple at the sheer mention of the holiness of God. And then I want you to recognize in verse 5, Isaiah's response. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Now, I'm not a huge proponent of the message translation for a translation for you to read in your regular Bible study, but I do think it is uh, a little bit helpful in a commentary. Like if you want to read the message as a commentary to a translation, I think that's fine. Wonderful. I, actually, when I did that this week, I said, what is woe is me? And I was looking at some word studies, and I was flipping through all the translations of the Bible uh, I had, and I found the, the commentary that I would call the message, which I call it a commentary, okay? and I opened it up, and I looked at this verse, and here's what the message said. When we say, woe is me, the message says, I'm as good as dead. And I'm thinking, that's a, that's a good definition. Woe is me, says, I see the holiness of God, and he says, I'm as good as dead in the state that I'm in before God. I thought, what a wonderful way to define how we relate to the holiness of God. Woe is me, I'm as good as dead. And then he begins defining why, he qualifies, why am I as good as dead? Because he says, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I love Isaiah because what he's saying is I recognize that not only am I sinful, but I dwell in the midst of sinful people. Like it is just our very nature that all of us as a collective are a sinful people. And we must recognize in the midst of the holiness of God, in the midst of me being an unclean person in the midst of unclean people, really the only response that we can have is I'm as good as dead. And he says we're as good as dead because he then goes to the rest of what we see there in verse 5. I'm as good as dead because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He came to the conclusion of who he was in light of who God was. Did you see that? As he saw the Lord, he recognized how I relate and what my state is compared to who God is. Is. And he says, because I've seen the Lord, his holiness, because I have it defined, I recognize, I recognize to me, I'm, I'm dead. I'm as good as dead in the sight of the holiness of God. You see, a clear vision of God's holiness should clearly help you define your own defilement, our own uncleanliness before God. When you define God's holiness, you should then have that holiness as a mirror before you saying, I recognize my utter despair and sinfulness and depravity before the holiness of God. And the only response you and I can have when we 
clearly define the parameters of who God is and who we are is exactly what Isaiah did. Woe is me. Like, I am as good as dead. And I'm going to tell you, if you have somehow tried to define God on your own terms or through some other way other than uh, the testimony of Scripture, and you have arrived to somewhere other than I'm as good as dead, you were taught a misappropriated view of God. If you ever learned about God and you didn't get to the end of your understanding of the holiness of God and say, I'm as good as dead, you did not have an accurate view of who God is. So for you, for me, we need to do this as point number two. We need to properly respond to God's holiness. We need to properly respond to God's holiness. When you think about the death of Christ, which again, this is why so many people in our culture don't understand the gospel of Christ. They don't understand when you say, God loves you so much that he killed his son. Right? Well, some of you in here are like, well, yeah, yeah, no, that's it. No. Listen. God loved you so much that he killed his son. You're going to say, that doesn't sound like a loving God. That sounds like, a, that sounds like somebody that has problems. No. God is so holy that the only way for you to be in his presence is if justice was poured out on a substitute that was sufficient for you to be brought into the presence of God. So Christ died for you because of the sheer holiness of God and our inability to be in the presence of God without a substitute, without someone standing in our place who was sufficient in his own holiness that could take our sin and our uncleanliness and bear it on the cross so then he can take us and present us to God in holiness and splendor. That's why Jesus died. And I think any other way you do it, you're, you're, you're completely twisting, it, particularly in the minds of people out in our culture, of what it means that God loves you. Because it doesn't make sense that if God so loved so-and-so that he killed so-and-so. You wouldn't say that. You know, I love my wife so and so much, I killed somebody. You would say, it's probably just not the way I would explain that. And you would hopefully, if you're a rational being, you would say, maybe there's some things I'm missing here, which is often what happens in the gospel message. Like, I, okay, I get what you're saying, but there's got to be something missing here. God just gone off and, and, and killed his son. Yeah, you're right. A rational being would say, I'm missing something if this is true. And they were. They were missing the holiness of God that made it necessary that Christ would come and be a substitute, and take the representation of humanity's sin on himself on the cross. You see how that made way more sense when you talk about the crucifixion of Christ in light of the holiness of God? And it starts in our lives as we begin properly responding to the holiness of God. I mean, your life, if you think about your life, your life is a negotiation. Did you, you recognize that? Your whole life is a negotiation. You're driving, the light turns yellow. I call it orange. My wife calls it yellow. And we're driving. And what are you doing when that light turns yellow and orange? You're negotiating, aren't you? Can I make it? Can I not make it? Right, you're negotiating, right? Your wife, maybe, you know, like, you know, you have a pregnant wife, and she's trying on a dress that she hadn't worn in a while. How do I look in this? And you're negotiating. And you're saying, do, she has, do, you, do I look like, do I look fat? And you're saying, you're negotiating. How should I do this? Right? And you're going to negotiate in light of who your wife is to you, aren't you? Maybe you have a wife, like I have a wonderful wife, and she says, listen, I don't, need, I don't need puffy platitudes. I need you to shoot me the truth and tell me what's going on because I'm going to wear this dress out in public, and I want to know how do I look in this compared to how I used to look at this. 
uh, so I love my wife, okay? But maybe not. Maybe you have a wife that says, listen, I know that this dress makes me look fat. I just need you to tell me you love me. Ah, that's fine, too. But you're negotiating, aren't you? You're making decisions based upon how you relate to whatever it is. Your wife, the red light, and I'm going to pause it to God. You're negotiating. Who am I compared to who are you, and how do I relate to you? Because, and I know how I relate to you because of who you are. Go back to the lion illustration, all right? I identified this line. Now i got to figure out how to live with this thing. Okay, It's in my house. It lives with me. And I know who that lion is. And we get up in the morning, I, all the doors are locked. All of them. Bedroom doors, bathroom doors, everything's locked. Because I don't want that lion to get into my room because I know who that lion is. All right, we get up, we unlock, we peek out. The lion's out there. We're opening the door. i got to get on with my life. We're walking to the bathroom. The lion needs to go to the bathroom. I need to go to the bathroom. Guess who's going to the bathroom first? The lion's going to the bathroom. I'm negotiating. I'm saying I recognize because of who you are, you get your way, all right? I have a steak. I put it on the grill. I turn it on. He comes over there, starts licking his lips. I say, it is yours, okay? It's, it's humor in it, but I want you to recognize the fact that we will, we ought to deal with people according to our relationship with them, how we know them and who they really are. And not how I've defined them, but how they are actually, who they actually, ontologically speaking, who God is determines how I respond to him. I don't get to respond to God just however I want to. That's why I love the lion illustration, because you, you about to know that you aren't going to respond to a lion however you want. You, aren't. you respond to that lion on the terms of that lion. You say whatever you want me to do. I go wherever you're not going. And I'm going to say, you're starting to get to a place of thinking rightly about God when you recognize that everything you do in your life, you're responding to on the terms of God, on his terms, not our own. I don't negotiate with God in the sense that I get to say, here's what I want to do, here's what you want to do, can we meet in the middle? You don't do that. You don't do that with a lion. You're not going to do that with God. And his holiness demands that he said, I am here, I'm in a fixed position, and you are going to relate to me according to my utter holiness and transcendence. And although I'm imminent and in your life, I am a fixed position. And you will relate to me according to that fixed position, and that fixed position is called holiness. And you will live and relate to me according to my holiness. The Old Testament and the New Testament, I love that when the Old Testament and New Testament repeat something, uh, define God as a consuming fire. Did you know that's not just an Old Testament phrase? Hebrews says that in the New Testament, that our God is a consuming fire. Again, a consuming fire, that is the glory of God, right, and a gulfing flame, and it's an emanation of his holiness. When they say God is a consuming fire, what they're saying, when we read in Scripture, is they're saying God is so utterly holy, he is unapproachable, he is untouchable, and he's a flaming fire, and if you get too close, you will be consumed. A little bit like a lion. That's who we talk about when we talk about God. And so I should, if I'm responding to God, should come from a basis of fear. Fear. You should respond to God on the presupposition of fearing God. Anytime I presuppose how I would relate to God, it must start with saying, I fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7. You can jot that down. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if I want to begin thinking right about anything, I must start with fearing God. This is one big problem. Why people don't think right about anything. People misjudge and misappropriate many things because they will not start with a right appropriation of fearing God. You can't even begin to think right about anything without fearing the Lord. 
And so we will start as a foundation of our Christian faith that I'm going to start to do everything I'm doing with the fear of the Lord in mind. I mean, even as a Christian, right, I'm saved. I'm in the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm grateful. I'm very thankful that I have a God, the consuming fire, who loves me and has invited me into his kingdom as not only a participant, but as a beloved child. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence. That word reverence in the Greek implies fear. That I'm going to revere God. I'm going to have a reverence for him. And the underlying tone of that is I have reverence for him because of who he is. I fear him and I have awe in verse 28. And 29 defines why. For our God is a consuming fire. And so I can love God. God can love me. And I'm still going to fear him because of who he is. Now, my fear might be a little qualitatively and quantitatively different than a non-Christian, right? As a Christian, I'm not fearing God's wrath. That's a good, that's a good distinction, isn't it? A non-Christian should fear the wrath of God. The Christian doesn't have to fear the wrath of God. But I should fear God. I should fear God's discipline. I should fear his infinite holiness compared to the limitations of my humanity, which is really the thing that you need to think about. So many of us say, I just can't, I just, I just love to just run up into the presence of God and just give him a hug. I'm like, do you notice in every testimony of anyone getting anywhere near the holiness of God in the Bible, that is just not what happens? And all I'm saying is, hold your horses and read what the Bible says about that. People drop to their knees. People are about to die. People, people are thinking, I can't get too close to that. Who do I think I am? that I could just run into that. Now, it doesn't mean I can't approach the throne of God. You can approach the throne of God. But I'm saying how you do it now is informed by the holiness of God and your reverence and your awe for God. No one says don't go to the presence of God, but you ought to recognize that you ought to go into the presence of God in a particular kind of way, recognizing his holiness. You can love God and God could love you and you still have a limitation of your own humanity in the presence of the infinite holiness of God. It's like scuba diving, okay? I hate the ocean. If you know that about me, you know that. But maybe you'd love the ocean. Maybe you're like my wife, and you love the ocean. And it's like scuba diving. You can love the ocean. I imagine if you're a scuba diver, you love the ocean. But you still recognize in the ocean, you fear your own limitations in the midst of an ocean, don't you? When you get into the ocean, you're like, big, giant, dangerous, okay? And, And when you scuba dive, you understand there's this limit of how deep you can go, isn't there? If you go too deep, you will die. The glory, the weight of the ocean is too much for your human limitation. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the ocean. Doesn't mean that you can't be around the ocean. It just means you better watch out how you live around the ocean. And all I'm saying, small example of how you ought to relate to God. God can love you and he does love you in Christ. You can love God, but you better recognize you have human limitations in the presence of holy. And you need to Engage with God with that as an undergirding principle of your life. All right. Well, there is a solution, at least in part, to our limitations, and that is namely our purification. Last two verses here. Verse 6 and verse 7 of Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim, I'm as good as dead, I'm sinful, I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin 
atoned for. So why the mouth? I mean, why not just burn Isaiah completely down? Right? I mean, it's like the whole thing's dirty, the whole thing needs to be cleansed. Well, I mean, if you think of the Bible, perhaps Luke 6.45 and, and verses like that give us the answer. Jesus says things like this, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so again, symbolically, when, when you have the angel going and purifying the mouth of Isaiah, it's symbolizing the purification of all of Isaiah. That if out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, it's your heart that's wicked, and it is a fountain of evil that bursts forth through the mouth. And so he is, now I, even as you continue reading through Isaiah, he's also going to be a mouthpiece for God. So it makes sense that his mouth is purified as he's going to speak on God's behalf. But to recognize, God didn't say, if for those who want to argue that it's just that the fact that he's going to be a mouthpiece of God, you recognize he's saying your guilt is taking away. Your sin is atoned for. He didn't just say, I've come to clean your mouth so that you can speak on my behalf. He says, no, no, I've come and atoned for your sin. I have come and I have taken your guilt away. Not just the guilt of your mouth, but the guilt of you. So it makes sense that God uses this symbolic appendage, the mouth, as, uh, as the, the, the thing that God would purify. As he's talking about purifying the whole person. So we have this burning coal as a symbolic instrument of God taking this and saying, you, a sinner, you are guilty of your sin. I'm coming to atone for that, and I'm using this as a symbolic instrument to show you that I'm coming, and I'm going to cleanse you. You can't cleanse you. I'm coming to cleanse you. And Scripture often, as we think about purification, because that's really the gist, that's why we talked about baptism and purification, that's why we talk about holiness is clean, right? Holy means undefiled. We talk about fire is often used as the as an image of purification, right? And so if Isaiah's issue was impure, defiled, sinful, it makes sense then that God would use fire to go purify him. It makes sense why when we think of the judgment of God that he's coming in a flaming fire of vengeance. Why? He's coming to purify. When we see the whole world is going to be burned up and then a new heavens and a new earth, why? It's because God's angry, he's going to burn the earth. No, he's coming to purify the earth. The judgment of God is a purifying fire. It's not because God's just angry and he's throwing hailstones at everything. He's using the image of the fire to purify that which has been defiled. And you must recognize that the purification that Isaiah receives is the mercy and grace that sinful people long for, the grace that all sinful people long for, that we could hear from God, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. I mean, think of the relief before a holy God as he's sitting there and he's saying, woe is me, and now God says, your guilt is atoned for, your sin is forgiven. There is the phrase that everybody wants, but you got to do what Isaiah did. Point number three, you need to confess your need for holiness. Confess your need for holiness. The last cross-reference I have for you, you can jot down Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 19 through 23. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And you can put in parentheses right there, holiness. When you're thinking about the fullness of God, you must first and foremost think the holiness of God dwelt in Christ. And it was pleased to dwell there. The fullness, all of who God is, dwelt in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile. That means he's going and he's paying the price. You got a debt, he came to pay it. You're defiled, he come to take care of it. 
And he come to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And even that, I love it. There is a picture of we recognize salvation isn't just an individualistic uh, concept in Scripture. He didn't just come to redeem the individual. He's coming, and ultimately, he will redeem all of creation. And so you just heard me talk about it earlier, that he's going to come, and the whole earth is going to be consumed, and he's going to purify the whole earth, and he's going to bring forth a new heavens and a new earth. He's coming to reconcile all of it, Okay. And so when you think about your own salvation, you're just a small piece of the big picture of what God is doing, and you must think about it that way. You don't have an individualistic faith. You have a corporate faith. You have a faith that is tied to the cosmic realities of God's eternal plan. And he's coming to reconcile all these things, and he has done this by making peace by the blood of his cross. You want peace with God? You want to be in a relationship with God? You must be cleansed. And it's going to take the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all of your sins. Because, verse 21, you who were once, or if you're still in here and you're separated from Christ because you're not saved, were alienated. You're hostile in mind and you're doing evil deeds. But for those who are in Christ, verse 21, he is now reconciled. He's paid the price in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you Holy. Did you hear that? I saw a bunch of people look up when I said holy. Because you're like, oh, it makes sense. The Bible does make sense. It does. The entire reason for Christ dying on the cross for you was to make you holy. Because without holy, you cannot be with God. And he come to die a death that you deserved and to take on your sin upon his shoulders so that he could take you and present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. If you want to know how to do that, it's simple as this. You turn from your sin, you place your trust in Christ. You want to be holy? You, you recognize you're defiled and you recognize you need to relate to God appropriately. You need to see that God is a consuming fire, a roaring lion, and I've got to renegotiate who in the world God is and how I relate to him according to Scripture. He tells you, repent of your sin. Turn away from a life, live for yourself, and put your trust in him to make you holy before a holy God. Why don't you stand with me as we dismiss this morning?